In the past four months, more Americans have died of COVID-19 than died in the entire Vietnam War. And Dr. Anthony Fauci reports findings from an NIH-backed study and says, I quote, a drug can block this virus. Meat supplies are thinning, and the president signed an executive order to keep meatpacking plants open, despite numerous outbreaks that forced them to close in the first place. This is America Dissected, and I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. $1,200 checks have been hitting mailboxes and bank accounts, and we asked you to tell us what you're doing with your check. Hello, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. Hello, Mr. Yang, Dr. El-Sayed. Hello, people of the America Dissected. There were some folks who used their checks to save for the future and spruce up on some extras. We used our stimulus checks, part of it to go towards our car payment. And I managed to get various things from from the grocery store, a new laptop. I'm using the money to get takeout from local restaurants more often than I would normally. The $500 my ex-husband and I got for my daughter, we put towards her 529 college savings plan. I've given to so many organizations and individuals who are suffering, which is something I couldn't really do before because our budget is always pretty tight. There were others who had to use their stimulus checks to make ends meet. I'm going to spend my $1,200 check on rent. I got eaten up really quickly. Paid off my bills, my utility bill, my rent. Paying down debt that I already have had for years. Almost half of it, about 1600 of that, went to finish paying my son's medical bills from when he was hospitalized in January. But a lot of folks shared stories like this. I am a DACA recipient, and my mother, of course, as you know, uh, from DACA recipients is undocumented and was recently laid off from her cleaning job two weeks ago. I've been very fortunate in still being gainfully employed, and I'm I'm sharing my stimulus check with my mother. So I've been one of the fortunate ones. I received both the stimulus and my unemployment went through. The last time I worked was March 11th. Um, I'm a furloughed clinical hospital worker. Um, I haven't exactly minded that, um, as I have asthma and fluctuating blood pressure problems and, you know, some high risk, I'm high risk, and we were being asked to ration PPE. But what I've spent my stimulus and unemployment on has been rent, utilities, food, healthcare, and internet. Um, I'm also contemplating learning new skills, just flat out changing my job. My husband and I will be holding on to our relief funds um, because he just lost his job. So he's among the millions of people who are unemployed now. Um, It's up to me to continue working. Um, I am considered an essential worker. So I get to go out every day terrified that I could come home and make us both sick. And... um, He was the one who had the insurance, so we lost that. So we're saving every penny we got. I don't have to tell you this. People are really, really struggling right now. The economy is on the fritz. People have been furloughed or laid off. And yet the bills keep piling up. Rent, car notes, health insurance, if you're lucky enough to have it, groceries. And oh yeah, 
there's a global pandemic raging outside, so we can't see or touch each other either. It's really hard. So part of the congressional response has been unprecedented, simply putting money in people's hands, a one-time disbursement of $1,200 per adult and $500 per child for families who earn below a certain income threshold. In a moment where social distancing is critical to slow the spread of this virus, money in people's bank accounts may be the most important public health tool we have. Why? Because as we've discussed, the choice to quote-unquote stay home and stay safe is no choice at all if it comes at the cost of your family having food on the table. And yet, we're closing in on month two of this, and the bills keep coming. Which forces the question, why not more money? Why not more than once? Our guest today has been thinking about these questions for a long time. My conversation with former presidential candidate Andrew Yang after the break. Friends, if you're enjoying this podcast, I hope that you'll check out my book, Healing Politics. I diagnose an epidemic of insecurity underneath this pandemic. I hope you'll check it out at healingpoliticsbook.com. All right, our guest today is Andrew Yang. Uh, most of you all know him from his electrifying run for president. And, um, you know, I got to know Andrew the first time uh, when he gave me a call back in December and um, sent me a copy of his book. And I really appreciated uh, his articulation of the challenges we face. The book is called uh, The War on Normal People. And uh, he lays out, I think, in painstaking, um, sometimes painful detail, uh, exactly why it is that we in this country need universal basic income. Uh, and he ran on uh, famously his freedom dividend. And um, and so uh, really grateful to have him on the show talking about the fact that the U.S. kind of just adopted uh, the, the, the policy. So, um, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. Can you um, just to step back for, for, for a minute? And, and you talk a lot about this in your book, but... Um, Lay out the case for why we need a universal basic income. Forget coronavirus for a second. Why at baseline do we need this? Our economy has been kicking millions of Americans to the curb progressively because of a combination of factors. But the the main one that I was identifying that I I believe uh, is accelerating very quickly is technological automation. And the example I tried to use for people that everyone understood was, look, uh, 30, 40, 50% of America's stores and malls are closing because of Amazon. And you don't think about that as automation because it's not like you go to the mall and there's like a robot clerk. But uh, if you go to the Amazon Fulfillment Center, it's wall-to-wall robots and machines. Uh, so that was an obvious change that everyone understood. But there are inobvious ones throughout the economy from autonomous vehicles to uh, the automation of back office clerical work to manufacturing, which in my mind, you're in Michigan right now, uh, the elimination of 4 million manufacturing jobs in Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, uh, Iowa, led to Donald Trump's election in 2016. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. to me, universal basic income was necessary in the face of economic trends that were going to eliminate the most common jobs in our economy. Uh, The jobs I just named are for the most five uh, most prevalent economic uh, employers. It's transportation, manufacturing, retail, administrative, and clerical. The other of the top five is food service and food preparation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but these are the most common jobs in our society. And I was convinced that we're eliminating them very, very quickly and there aren't adequate replacements. 
Now, the pandemic has unfortunately accelerated many of these trends much faster than I ever could have imagined, where we've gone the the equivalent of 10 years in the last 10 weeks, in my opinion. Mm. In a lot of ways, right, it's my uh, hypothesis that so many of the human costs of this pandemic, and I say this as an epidemiologist, were laid in the traps well before we ever got here. And so you speak to an economy that is actively automating. In some respects, talk to us about what this might have looked like if we had gone back in the past and we'd had a universal basic income as it stood and then in comes this pandemic. How would it have changed the experience of this thing? It would have changed so much, uh, Abdul, and we weren't that far from it. Like, this is not my idea and it's not a new idea. Uh, Martin Luther King was fighting for it in the 60s and then it almost passed the, uh, well, it did pass the House and it almost passed the Senate in 1971. So if you can imagine a world where we all had, let's say, $1,000 a month or $1,500 a month guaranteed, then when this pandemic came, uh, instead of people risking life and limb to try and put food on the table, we could have done what, frankly, people like you and me who have a bit more in the way of resources could do, which is you just go and hunker down. Uh, Mm -hmm. But there were many, many Americans who felt like if they went home, then they were going to lose their shift, they were going to lose their wages, they they weren't going to have the ability to put their roof, put uh, groceries on the table or a roof over their head. So we, uh, we're vulnerable to this virus in part because we're so financially insecure. Um, no, we're, we're vulnerable also because we don't have access to healthcare uh, the, the way we should society-wide. Um, but you can see right now the fault lines in our society where the privileged among us can go home and quote-unquote work from home mm-hmm. and you know log into our laptops and, and, and do various things. Uh, but there are many Americans who just had their income cut off like a faucet uh, and their work involves going to the nail salon. Their work involves going to the uh, the store and being a security guard, uh, going to the airport and being a bartender, whatever it is. Um, and now those people are left in positions where they can't adhere to public health guidelines the same way that you can if you have economic security. Mm-hmm. I was reflecting on this when the initial checks were being discussed, that actually being able to buy people out of the choice between going out and earning a livelihood versus staying home and protecting their lives is really a public health intervention, right? UBI in this moment is a public health intervention because you're allowing people to stay home and stay safe. You know, it's it's amazing to think that, you know, we've gotten there once, but then that's it. We've got one check that's gone out to in, in, in $1,200 spurs. That check uh, literally paid like last month's bills for many families. And now this month's bills are, are right now. And then there's next month's bills. Like uh, the fact that it's just this one-time payment, um, certainly like I hope that Congress gets its shit together and gets a, another payment out um, immediately. And then every month for the duration of the crisis. I'm I'm confident you've been you've been chatting with some of the folks thinking through that. Um, what is what do you say to somebody like Mitch McConnell? How do you get him to realize that this, in fact, is a must do? It's not just something that uh, that that could be nice, right? They've just they've just bailed out huge corporations. Um, how do you make that argument to him? I would say to Mitch, look, the people in your 
uh, community are suffering on an unprecedented scale. You have fewer Americans working right now than at any point in history. And if you go talk to people in Kentucky, which you represent, uh, they will tell you that they need to have money in their pockets as soon as possible. And for conservatives, one of the things I found works well, better, um, and it's honest from my perspective, is you want to keep people from taking matters in their own hands. Like people have limitations, you know, like if you reach a point where food security isn't adequate, then people will go out and just start taking food. Like, you know, I mean, that that's just decisions people will make. Mm. I actually find conservatives respond to that line of argument <laughs> like better than like an empathy driven argument where you're like, hey, it's the right thing to do. So it's just like a law and order approach. Yeah, it's just like like you just don't want people to start like breaking windows and like taking stuff. I mean, you know, people have limits like uh, at some point they'll just start, you know, and, and that actually seems to work on a different set of legislators. <laughs> mm. It's both sad, but also profound. Um, and what's interesting right now, right, is that we have now this sort of astroturfed, quote-unquote, protests that we're seeing against stay-at-home orders. But that energy is founded in a certain frustration about how you're going to be able to put food on the table for your families. I mean, it's really interesting to think, like, had we had a UBI or even just in the middle of this pandemic, a consistent set of checks that were going to people, you know, it might stop the or undercut the, the purpose of these protests and allow people to be a little bit more comfortable doing what we have to do to prevent and mitigate this, um, the spread of this disease and continue to social distance. So it really is a public health intervention. And, you know, it's sad that people don't see it that way. Yeah, it's one of the most effective interventions we can actually execute on right now. Uh, I'm part of something called Project 100, which is trying to distribute 100 million to 100,000 families uh, in the next 100 days. And, and when you're in the midst of a pandemic, they're the things that you you focus on. But one of the most effective ways to help people flatten the curve is to give them choices is to say, look, you know, like if you just decide to stay home for a while, it's going to be okay. Like, you know, you don't need to worry about next month's rent. Um, in an ideal situation, the government would literally just be paying our bills at this point. It would be like, hey, landlords, don't bill the tenant, bill Uncle Sam, and then we got it. That would have actually been the optimal approach, in part because our bureaucracies are not designed to get people the resources they need at this scale in this time frame. There are millions of Americans who are not getting stimulus checks. There are hundreds of thousands of small businesses that are uh, completely left in the cold. They're not accessing the SBA's program that evaporated anyway. Uh, and I was having a conversation with, with someone today. It's like, if you had this SBA program, why would you even cap it? Why would you even say, hey, we've got $350 billion on it? It's like, look, it's just there. Like, if you apply, you get it. Um, that actually would have been a more sensible way to go than to have this food fight for resources um, that benefits the people who have the best connections or the best private banking relationship. You're touching on something, I think, profound, which is that you know, no matter the system we talk about, there is always an inequitable reach of that system. And there are always folks who are better connected, have more resources, and can cut to the front of the line. And one of the things that I think is really profound about UBI is that it recognizes that no matter who you are, a baseline amount of money can keep you secure. Um, can you speak a little bit about why you believe it has to be universal and it shouldn't be means tested? Because a lot of folks will push back and be like, well, you know, we don't have to, why would we write checks to, you know, to millionaires? That doesn't make any sense. 
Well, first, let me say that I'm a fan of anything that cuts in this direction. So if you were to say negative income tax, scaled up earned income tax credit, <laughs> you know, things that fall short of a true universal basic income, Andrew Yang would be completely on board. Mm. <laughs> you know, like, like, I'm, like I'm not a zealot. You're, you're pragmatic about this. Yeah. yeah. But I talked to people who had very nice looking incomes in 2018 because they own a restaurant but now they're in desperate circumstances and they're not going to qualify for a stimulus right. because, you know, they made too much that year. And they're looking at it being like, wait a minute, like uh, I'm literally just trying to like, you know, not fire the bus boy or whatnot. Like, I'm, you know, while keeping a roof over my own family's head and you're like, whoop, like, you know, you made too much. Um, I mean, if if we were smart about it, we could have given everyone money and then just clawed it back in the 2021 tax returns if we felt like it, mm -hmm. you know, because we're in the midst of a crisis here. It's just like just give everyone the money and be like, hey, guess what? If you make too much this year and it turns out you didn't need it, we'll just take it back later. Like that's actually a more effective way to go than trying to calibrate um, in this way, because mm -hmm. like what what are you really trying to conserve? I mean, we can see that our government is literally just forking over hundreds of billions of dollars to, to major corporations. So like, do we really care if we sent twelve hundred dollars like that we shouldn't have to like the dentist? <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, 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 is that really the you know, like that? That's uh, so uh, anything that gets money into people's hands, I'm all for. Um, I do think that universality is a real asset. Uh, I think that making it a right of citizenship um, uh, is is the right way to go in part because of what you just said, which is like it just recognizes that everyone has worth. Everyone has value. Mm -hmm. It takes all of the uh, com combativeness and stigma out of it. Um, if you just say, look, you're a human being, you get this amount of money to meet your needs. No questions asked. There are a couple of um, really interesting points that I think you made there, which are really critical. Number one, that in some respects, this is a lot more about liquidity than it is about assets, right? It's about recognizing that even if you make money yesterday, it doesn't mean that you're going to make money today uh, or that you'll make it tomorrow. And this guarantees that you're going to have something coming in that covers you at baseline, which I think sometimes when you talk to conservatives, they don't quite appreciate, right? That having access to resources that are inconsistent is like having no resources at all. One example of this is you look at food insecurity. There's an association between food insecurity and obesity, which doesn't seem to make sense at the at the front end, right? Like why, if you don't have regular access to food, are you now at calorie surplus? But if you think about it, there's a perverse incentive. If you don't know where your next meal is coming from, you're going to eat your whole meal now. And um, and there's something about the the consistent security of a regular check that I think is really profound. There's a financial equivalent of that food insecurity. It's this income volatility. Um, and, and many, many Americans face it because they're doing shift work or wage work and they can have some shifts one week and then fewer the next. Um, and, and that has a really, really negative effect on your consumption patterns, your mental health, your sense of uh, security in the future. It's so extreme that the vast majority of Americans would accept less money if it was reliable. Wow. Wow. That is, uh, that is profound. One question I have is, you know, one of the hard parts right now is that, at, at least in, in my mind, and I talk about this a little bit in, in, in my book, um, and I, I, I want to ask you because, you know, you're somebody who's thought a lot deeper about this and smarter than I am about it. But um, we have this, this challenge where... Um, Right now, we seem we have a stake in government because we pay taxes into government, right? And if 
Instead, government was paying us. That money would have to come from somewhere. And that money would likely come from forcing corporations to pay their fair share, right? Because part of the point here- well, That was my plan. That was my plan. Yeah. And I agree with you. Um, so corporations have to pay their fair share, and then that pays to us. But part of the challenge here then is all of the money that moves hands, it basically excises us out, right? Rather than us necessarily having to sell our labor, right, to make money, right, sell our labor usually to some business- and then make money to that, and then pay part of that to the government for its public services, we're basically just receiving and consuming. Um, and we don't necessarily have a tax stake in government. And there's a sort of interesting you know, political economy question of, well, what stake do you have if you're not part of what's paying for the goods and services you receive? And would love to get your thoughts on that. Well, first, I think that citizenship is more profound than whether or not you pay taxes. Like, uh, you know, if, if you're a five-year-old, you know, you have a stake in the future and presumably you're not paying anything yet. Uh, you know, and there are many Americans who are in circumstances where they're not um, paying in that way. The second thing is that uh, in a world where we were all getting this uh, basic income, let's call it $1,500 a month, um, I was arguing for $1,000 a month during the campaign, um, that money is going to end up flowing back into the community. And the vast majority of people are going to still have work relationships, actually more in my opinion, uh, and so there still would be this entire matrix of value taking place where it wouldn't be that if, if we got this money, we'd just be chilling at home. <laughs> it would be that like we got this money and then we'd be going out and spending in the community and more of us would be starting businesses in our communities because there's more money circulating, but also you have a sense of security. Um, this That's one of the, the bigger misconceptions about a basic income is that it actually ends up creating more work uh, in more environments. Uh, than the absence of it. So that would be the the second thing. Uh, you know, the, there was a, a funny saying that uh, for some reason, like this made me think of, it's like, if you owe me a, a million dollars, you're in trouble. If you owe me a billion dollars, I'm in trouble. If the government has a stake in us, like some people are like, oh, that's going to make us somehow supplicants to the government. I'd be like, actually, it's going to be the opposite. Like we're actually going to be freer, more activated, um, more participatory. Can you imagine like how many more people would vote if we were all getting a thousand bucks a month and you felt like, wow, if I don't vote, like they might mess with the freaking dividend. <laughs> like, like I better make sure and safeguard that. Plus I ha probably have the liberty to vote at a higher level because maybe like I'm not living hand to mouth every moment. And if I have to take a shift off, like I'm not going to die. Whereas, or the, you know, you're not concerned that the employer is just going to fire you. Um, uh, so th that's actually the big rebalancing that, um, some of us envision with a basic income is that it actually empowers people and energizes our democracy, um, rather than the other way around. And some argue that, you know, in response to the basic income, a lot of the other really important public services that, uh, that are required by by people without means might be stripped away. Can you speak to that and 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 the the potential challenge with that? Because it, you know the classic basic income argument is that you know take away the rest of the welfare state and then just give everybody a basic income and you've now solved those challenges. Can you speak to how you how you think about that? Oh, certainly. That I mean, I I'm very happy to talk about like how I think about it um, because I got to say this is something that my campaign uh, I think got mischaracterized by uh, in in many. Um, respects where in my mind this basic income is like a beginning but you don't stop with it i mean we still have massive problems that we have to try and address um and 
it's not one size fits all. Like I think the way I think of it is like, it's like a foundation of let's call it $1,500 a month. And then you try and build a structure on top of the foundation. Now, I, I do think that some of our current programs do have some negative incentives attached to them. And when I was running, some people would say to me, it's like, look, my incentive right now to get a part-time job at the diner is zero because they'll just strip away these benefits that I'm getting right now. And, and so like, you know, why, why would I do it? Um, and that person was complaining to me because they actually wanted the part-time job and they resented the fact that like they had zero economic incentive to actually pursue it because the government is just going to take away um, some of the benefits that they were currently receiving for their family. Like they, they hated it. Um, and that's something that I would uh, sympathize with where it's like, look, if you decide to get that part-time job, you should be uh, making more than if you're not doing that part-time job. So you'd advocate for, you know, maybe not harshly means testing a lot of these support services. And in some respects, that's a dividend. And then, you know, potentially building out, you know, other universal services, you know, free school meals, college, healthcare. Is that how you you think about it? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And right now, I, I think that the fact that we conflate economic worth and human worth in the way we do is really, really uh, corrosive and devastating. And, and our programs... Um, represent that more than just about anything where it's like, hey, you're here and you're down on your luck. You're not making much money. So we'll give you stuff. But if you start making more, then you don't get stuff. Uh, and then people look up and be like, well, I guess I think the point here is for me not to do the, the, the like like this, this thing to better my situation because that's just the way the program's set up. Uh, and uh, I think it would be better to have universal services just say, look, here's a dividend. And what's that? You need childcare, you need uh, healthcare, you need mental health infrastructure, we need social workers. Like, uh, you know, in your book, you talk about it as this epidemic of insecurity. I cannot agree more. And we have to try and attack it at every level. Um, but we don't want to do is we don't want to set up massive infrastructures that dehumanize people that say, right. you know, and, and, and unfortunately, I think that's what we've done to, to many families. Yeah. So it's it's really the taking away of stuff that really is the problem, right? When we means test and take away, that is what I think has created a lot of these perverse incentives. Um, yeah. Plus, plus the entire means testing thing, it's like it's like you are what you earn. Uh, you know, it's like, what the hell is that? You know, <laughs> like, no, that's a that's a profound point is that, you know, there is something spiritual almost about how we decide who someone is based on means. And, um, you know, even the term of, you know, what are they worth? You think about that for a second. Uh, well, they're worth a human life, right? They're not worth a, a certain dollar amount. Yes. And if we rely on the market to determine what we're worth, it's going to go more and more poorly for more and more of us over time. Like that, that was actually one of the big themes of my campaign is like, look, like we have intrinsic worth. Um, what the market says we're worth is garbage. It's not entirely garbage, but it's mostly garbage. Uh, and the example I used was that my wife's at home with our two sons, one of whom is autistic. What does the market say she's worth? And then they think about it for a second and be like, wait, they value that at zero. It's like, yeah, do you think that's worth zero? Uh, like, I know that is actually harder work than anything I was doing. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, like we, we have to start coming up with our own uh, independent way of valuing ourselves and, and have it be intrinsic, not based upon like how your education, skills, 
like stem like any of this other bullshit <laughs> you know like that's why i get so frustrated when some people are like oh you know how we're gonna get out of this like teach our kids like uh to code and be like you know that's like you know it, it, it's like still just following the market's goalposts uh in a way that you know it, it's you know it, it's like succumbing to the uh, the notion that the market tells us how much we're worth right um one thing that was really interesting in the last couple of weeks is we saw massive, devastating unemployment numbers, and we also saw the stock market rally. And it's the only time I can see in history where we've fully decoupled what we think about corporations' future worth and how that maps onto the workforce's experience. And that's a pretty crazy thing. Um, how do you explain that? And, and, and how does that play into your, your, uh, your analysis here? The simple truth is that investors are paying for financial returns. Uh, and these companies can produce higher profits by stripping away employees and not hiring more. Um, the, the, the mistake that we've been making for decades is that we've been pretending that if a company is successful, then that company will then have to hire lots of employees, give them benefits, treat them well. What's good for these businesses is good for the community in Michigan. It's good for the community in Ohio. Um, and that relationship has been attenuated and even severed uh, more and more over the last number of years. And what you're describing right now is like the end of the, the pretense. At this point, the companies are just like, look, the fact is we're gonna do better with fewer workers and you're going to reward us when we announce job cuts. Um, and that's the way our system is designed because the investors are like, yeah, get rid of those workers because we hate them. They're just like a drag on you. Uh, and uh, and so what does that mean for our society? I mean, what it, what it means is that we have to stop pretending that what's good for these companies is going to benefit our families and our communities. And that's a very, very big move, but it's overdue. Like this, this has been happening for years uh, where companies' profits and companies employing lots of American workers or workers anywhere, um, like just don't go hand in hand anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's a pretty devastating reality when you consider how much we've packed on to employment, whether that's healthcare access, a living wage, retirement. Um, and it really speaks to, you know, the work that you've done. So um, really appreciate that. The last question we always ask everybody is, how are you spending this time? Uh, what are you all doing? And uh, how have you all been handling this uh, this, this very odd moment of, of physical distancing? Uh, I'd love to get into that. But one thing I just want to throw in there, because you talked about how uh, universal basic income is at this point a public health intervention, because people can adhere to guidelines, which is totally mm -hmm. right. Um, but one thing I just want to um, emphasizes that universal basic income is also a mental health intervention. Mm. We have a mental health epidemic, a crisis around the country pre the, this pandemic. Uh, and it's tied into these feelings of um, financial insecurity and anxiety about the future. That if you were to put money into everyone's hands, you would lift the spirits of millions. And even if you're just to be practical about it, it's like, they can pay for counseling. They can like do things, but but it, it would be intrinsically positive for many, many of us just to feel like our basic needs are met. It's like the best thing we could do for our mental health. So I just want to throw that in. It's a great point. As for how I'm spending my time right now, I'm like you where 
like I'm just trying to do as much work as I can to help people. Um, uh, and th this crisis uh, makes that need even more, uh, more clear and extreme. Um, so my organization, Humanity Forward, is uh, putting economic relief right into people's hands. Uh, we've distributed 1.4 million thus far with another, uh, hopefully, um, like a significant round of money on the way. Um, it's it's not enough, but we're doing everything we can. Uh, I'm part of Project 100, which is philanthropists donating 100 million to 100,000 American families over 100 days. And uh, we're at 55 million and counting so far. And that money is just getting dropped right into people's accounts uh, via Propel, which is the app that they use to access food stamp benefits. Um, so 100,000 food stamp recipients are going to get an extra $1,000 in the next 100 days. Um, if we can raise the next 45 million. Uh, so staying very busy and the most important thing, just like you, I mean, uh, with family safe and sound, uh, just trying to appreciate this time. Uh, thank you again. Uh, thank you for your leadership and, um, and thank you for, uh, for, for the opportunity to chat and, and sort of dig through the ways in which, um, you know, UBI and, and public health have, have sort of merged in this moment. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Abdul. Stay safe, brother. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. A number of states have hesitantly opened up, but not much is happening. And that kind of makes sense, no? After all, it's not like everyone's really looking forward to packing into a crowded restaurant or waiting at the barbershop to get a cut when there's a super infectious, deadly virus lurking around. And then there's always the risk of another rebound in cases. What do these early openers teach us about how we do this safely and actually get something out of it for the economy? Universities are weighing the question of how to, even if to, open up in the fall. But how do you do college socially distanced? Oh, and by the way, we saved one voice memo from earlier. Hi, this is Chris Bartlett from Chicago, Illinois, and I donated my stimulus check to the Coronavirus Relief Fund from Kirkwood Media. If you'd like to be like Chris and support organizations leading the fight to support our most vulnerable during this pandemic, donate to Crooked Media's Coronavirus Relief Fund at crooked.com coronavirus. To all those who shared your voice memos we didn't get to share and the many others who emailed us, thank you for sharing. We hope we'll get to share your voice in a future pod. We'll see you on Tuesday with another update. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Stephen Hoffman is our senior producer. Charlotte Landis mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra and Sydney Rapp. The theme song is by Takayasuzawa and Alex Vieira. Our executive producer is Sarah Geismer, and I'm your host, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed. Thanks for listening.